This morning's word is called the suffering servant, as I mentioned before, again in a part of our series on the name above all names, talking more about the person of Christ, his role. Um, Let us pray before we go any further. Heavenly Father, we give thanks this morning. Lord, one, in being able to see how you provide for your church through your people, through the works, the jobs that we have, through, Lord, through the many avenues. But more than anything, Lord, to pray and to give thanks for the way in which you provide for your church in being able to enter into topics like suffering. Lord, and to know that there is a word of hope here. Lord, to know that you have provided a way for us to be able to not just endure, Lord, but thrive under the work of your Son. We give thanks for the way in which you provided him, the suffering servant. And we pray this morning that we would be able to see more of your face. Heavenly Father, more of your love for us as seen through your Son. And Lord, that we would be able to see this well and right without it being too caught up, Lord, in the uh, pervading thoughts of the world. Lord, reveal to us your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a long time ago, we're going to start back in history, in the land of Egypt. During the time of Exodus, the Hebrew people were slaves, like much of us already know. They worked under hard masters that made unrealistic and unkind demands upon the people. They were beaten, they were abused, and they suffered at the hands of Pharaoh. And they are described in the word as a people that had a broken spirit. But it is here in seeing the suffering of Israel that we catch our first glimpse of the Lord intervening to save them as a people. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I didn't reveal myself to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they resided as aliens. I have also heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will set you free from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from your slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. 
I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And Moses told this to the Israelites. But because they had a broken spirit and were caught in their captivity, they did not hear it. We can't imagine that, can we? That we would be in, to be in such difficult conditions like this and hear a word of hope, of freedom, and to be so broken that it would just run off of you. You wouldn't hear it. But it's here in this place that despite the people not hearing it, that God, uh, he hears He hears the cry of his people, the people he has made a covenant with, and he makes a move to redeem them, to save them and set them free, free to be this great redeemer's people, just as he would be their God and to bring them to that land of promise and rest that they so desperately need. Now, in a land that was filled at the time with powerless idols that did not hear, could not feel, and certainly had no power to save, our God heard the cry of his people, and he is moved to save. This is the Lord. This is the heart of the Lord for the people that he loves. He wants them as his own. People that would delight in the freedom that only he can bring. And he makes a way for that to happen. An exodus. Now skipping forward a little bit further in history. After the exodus from Egypt, the people travel to the Mount of Sinai. And at the foot of the mountain, the Lord says to Moses and to the people, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all of the people. The whole earth is mine, but you shall be my priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you should speak to the Israelites. So Moses came, summoned the elders of the people and set before them these words, that the Lord had commanded him, and the people answered as one. Everything that the Lord has said, we will do. Listen to how the Lord speaks of his people. You shall be my treasured possession. The whole earth is mine, but you, you really are mine. You will be a priestly kingdom, my holy nation. What incredible affection the Lord has for them. This is what the people are to be now. His affectionate people, the ones he holds as precious. They were to be his people, a light on a hill to the world, showing his message to everyone, declaring his message and an obedient people. And then after this, Moses ascends the mountain to receive the law 
of the people, of the Lord for the people to operate as his people. And as he comes down again after 40 days, what does he find his precious people doing? Worshipping a golden calf, an idol. And we begin to see that from Egypt and even from Mount Sinai, a cycle begins to develop in history and amongst the people. Where the Lord shows his mercy and saves them and they turn from him back to the ways that he has saved them from. The people of God turn from God. They do not worship him alone. They do not become a holy people, it seems, or a light to the world. And they certainly don't obey him. They are a rebellious people against the one that saved them. And they suffer as a consequence of it. They suffer the judgment of the Lord and the consequences of their own sin. There was sickness. They were denied the promised land for a generation. They lost battles. They were invaded. They were taken into exile again and enslaved again. And the Lord, through it all, though he passed judgment on the people for their sin, never stops loving them. As we do our own rebellious children. They were his treasured possessions that never changed. Even though by the end of the Old Testament, you can't help but see this people as the most rebellious, stiff-necked people that you have ever seen in history. People that cannot seem but cannot help but sin against God to turn from him at every opportunity they are given. And they were given more opportunities than most. And yet, and yet the Lord desires them. In a verse spoken by the Lord through Isaiah to the people in a, while they were in Babylon, one of the consequences they suffered. The father says this, comfort, comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her time. She has paid her penalty that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sin. Comfort to these people. The people that had been set free from the kingdom of Egypt, they had been set free from the kingdom of Egypt, but they had not been set free from the kingdom of darkness. It still held them captive, a people enslaved by sin in the depths of their beings. And they couldn't be fully the Lord's until this was dealt with. And they suffered for it. Sometimes, like in Egypt, 
seemingly undeservedly and other times as a consequence of what they chose. So what then? Is there no hope for Israel being stuck in this cycle of sin? Were they were they never really set free? Are they to be stuck like this forever? Is God wasting his mercy on these people, having chosen them as his desired possessions? If they continue to return again and again to the world. Well, it's safe to say, and we know, that he is not wasting his time or his mercy. For Isaiah 43, God introduces something new to the equation. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do something new. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God is going to bring about an end to this cycle for Israel. He is going to do something new, something that will be like a stream of water in the wilderness, living water for these people to be able to sustain themselves on, to be free on. He is going to save them, not again and again and again as he has been, but once and for all. Now, the latter part of Isaiah is famous for its servant songs of which of us are, many of us are familiar. They are found in chapters 42 to 53. Four songs that depict someone that God is going to send called the servant. A title that was at once given to Israel and represents a way, uh, in a way all that they were meant to be as God's people as a people that worshipped him alone, that spread his message and obeyed his commands to the full. And now it is a title that is given to this person because he is going to substitute Israel where they have failed. This individual will succeed on their behalf. The first three songs depict the servant as satisfying the requirements of the people uh, for the Lord. This servant was ruled by the Father in having a spirit of God, not worshipping idols. He would be a prophet that read and spoke the word of God to the people with authority. And he would be obedient. He would speak with a mouth instructed by God, with ears attentive to his teachings and possessing no rebellion. Davy Ellison wrote in a helpful article, the servant will be everything that Israel was not. He will do everything Israel could not. And he will perfectly obey the Holy One. This servant of God, the servant God was sending, was going to save his people by being all that God needed and wanted from them, for them. But there was one more song 
the song that we read this morning that depicted a fourth aspect of the servant and his role of substituting or standing in for the people of God. And it's different from the other three. Rather than depicting the requirements God had for the people to be holy and obedient, this servant satisfies the needs of the Father and his justice. The punishments that his people were deserved for being disobedient. Because the Lord loved them and wanted them as his holy people, he had to satisfy all the requirements that his justice demanded of them. Their obedience and their punishment. And so we read that this servant was humbled, despised, rejected, acquainted with infirmity, carrying our diseases, afflicted, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, punished and bruised, led like a lamb to the slaughter, treated unjustly, killed and treated as one of the wicked, though he had done nothing wrong. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. As we are accounted all of his righteousness, he would gain all of our sin. And he would take it to the grave. That we might live. It is this aspect of the servant that we will focus on this morning. His suffering in our place. Who is this servant? In the book Name Above All Names that we are following, Beg or Ferguson wonder what it would have been like for Isaiah to have written this passage and not known who he was speaking about. And questioning who this saviour would be. Peter says that while the angels find themselves wondering what it would be like for believers to experience the grace of God, the prophets were wondering when and who this person would be. That, would, uh, that he had predicted and the subsequent glories that would follow. In fact, the suffering servant's song was the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was pondering upon when he encountered Philip. Even the eunuch asked, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about somebody else? And then Philip began to speak, And starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. For he is the servant whose punishment makes us whole and by whose bruises we are healed. Now in a moment we'll consider what we are told of the suffering of Jesus as he walked towards and endured the cross. But before we do, we have to see something of the true unknowability of it. We have descriptions like being rejected and despised. And we have read stories where we have seen these happening in the New Testament. The attitude of the Pharisees, the isolation of the cross, the torments that he went through. But we can never truly know somebody else's suffering and we can never truly know 
the depth of Christ's suffering as he suffered for every one of his people. As he suffered the consequences and wrath of God's judgment of sin. They are depths that we cannot plumb and his sorrow will always be greater and deeper than anything we have ever experienced ourselves. He took the cup of wrath and drank it until there was nothing left. And the full weight of sin was was laid on his shoulders. The suffering of it as great as the Lord is holy. It had to be. So for the most part, as the the suffering servant is and may always be a tremendous mystery to us. Something that can, we can only be in awe of and appreciate as far as the Lord is willing to reveal it to us. This is in part because we are blind to the depravity of our own sin and to the holiness of God. And so we don't comprehend the limits of our own offence. But I think partly it's also a mercy. For in these moments to be able to really perceive the suffering of Christ would be able to see his glory as well. And in our current states to be undone. But we can give thanks. Even in this mystery for what we do know and wonder at the act of love that we see here from Jesus. This act of love that is too great for us to understand but big enough for us to be a part of. What we can know is that despite the depths of sorrow that would have been involved in bearing our suffering, there was even greater love involved. First, it was the love held by the Father for his people that he is called. Remember the story of Israel being enslaved that we spoke on both in Egypt and more significantly in their larger rebellion and sin. His attitude of comfort, comfort my people. Remember the father's desire for them, that they would be his precious people, his treasure, a priestly and holy nation. He never lets go of his promise of those that he loves, even in the face of their rebellion even in the face of the cost of their salvation, even at the cost of his own son. The Father so loved the world that our passage says, we, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or in verse 10, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. And why does he crush his servant? For the Lord, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Or in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin He made him to be sin who knew no sin 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Father loves his people. Secondly, it was it is something to see the great love held also by the Son. From Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You can see in the Lord's Supper, can't we, the knowledge that Jesus has of what is coming up, of the suffering that lays before him, not something done in ignorance and without knowledge. The description that he gives to the bread. This is my body broken for you, my blood that has been spilt for you. Even before the Passover, Jesus says to his disciples, we are going to go to Jerusalem. And everything, in, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. And after that, they'll flog him and they'll kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. He knew exactly what he was stepping into. He knew the depths of the suffering that lay before him, the fathomless depths of the suffering. Yet the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. We can at times get caught in the trap of seeking to feel and know the pain of the cross. The unknowable depths. And in doing so too much, search for feelings of indebtedness and guilt in the cross. Watching the Passion of the Christ movie as a teenager, I searched for those guilty feelings. Thinking that without that feeling of indebtedness to God, that I must not know him. But we must remember that the cross is an action of grace given freely because he loves us, a debt he willingly paid, not a debt that he holds over us. Freely given to all that believe so that we would be their precious possession. It's in the suffering of Christ also that we most easily identify with his humanity. It's the reason for the reading from the Garden of Gethsemane this morning. While in most of Jesus's ministry, when he alluded to the cross and the suffering that was that was before him, he was calm and appears collected in the text. But it's in the garden that we see his humanity as he confronts it, to fall on his knees under the weight of it, to cry out with loud words to the Lord that he might be spared if it is his will, 
This is not Jesus encountering our suffering as a divine being that does not feel it like a man or a woman would. But he is human and he feels the full weight of it as our substitute. And it's because of his humanity in this role as the servant that we can see even more of God's love. Through the window of our own common suffering. Those things and times where we are in pain, physical or emotional or mental, all of it Jesus suffered in our place as a human being for all the sin that assails us. So then he suffered the very same things that we have. He has tasted the very same pains that we have. Before I said that no one else can know another person's pain. If you've encountered someone that's lost, a child, and you see a mother and a father react in the suffering, it is different for both of them, though they've both lost a child. There's no comparison between one another. The only one who truly knows our pain is Jesus. The only one who truly substitutes us is Jesus. And because of those pains, it gives us a window to understand and be able to say, Lord, I know a little more now of what it meant for you to take my sin and to suffer in my place. I don't know it all, but I know a little more now of your love for me, that you would bear this and more. But more wonderfully, because he uttered those words on the cross, it is finished. We know that as great as our own suffering may be now, and how lonely it can be, how much you can feel rejected at times, how tired, broken, no matter how long it may have gone on for, there is an end. That the suffering that once would have been eternal is now only for a small time here. And then we have glory. The land which God chooses and delights to bring us into. The land of his promise and our rest. For we are his precious people. Those that he loves even to the cross. And like Israel he desires that you and I be spared the full taste of suffering for our sin. And to be with him instead as his people in his land of promise and rest. Let's pray and give thanks to our Lord and the suffering servant.
Heavenly Father, we give thanks that in in our suffering, Lord, that this word gives us a new perspective. The perspective of of you, Father, who looks at things eternally. Even in days when we are caught up in our pain and, and it looks cloudy, Lord, and we cannot see you, to be able to know that your son suffered as we do and more and that he brought it to an end, Lord. He broke the cycle of sin and suffering that we might come to you and be yours. Heavenly Father, it is a difficult thing at times to suffer, but thank you that you join us, that we are not alone, that you provide us hope of a day when we will be in glory and in rest and able to sing songs of praise about you and your servant. Heavenly Father, help us to fix our eyes upon you in those times and to not get caught up in the cloudiness of our own pain, but see through to the sun that is always there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.